what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence itself. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mic Podcast, episode number 46. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We have returning guest at Money on the show, and we're going to be discussing the formation of UNESCO and also looking at the United Nations and their mini charters that enable them to live as though they are sovereign beings here on planet Earth. Meanwhile, the rest of us get put into this corporate law system with our all capitals last name. Yes, we're going to be going down that rabbit hole tonight, everyone. We're going to look at why the United Nations have got control over millions of acres of land across the world, how UNESCO get to control these sites, who can go on them, and even what nations themselves can do with that land. We're going to find out who was behind UNESCO from the very beginning and how transhumanism, one world religion, occultism, Freemasonry was all infused into the very fabric of both the United Nations and UNESCO. And of course, we're going to look at where all this is heading, where it's taking us the Sustainable Development Goals, Agenda 2030, 2050, which are using an engineered existential crisis related to climate to take control of all natural resources everywhere and all human beings everywhere, usurping our inalienable rights that were handed to us by our creator and replacing them with what they call human rights, which of course are controlled by humans. They will tell us what we can do and when we can do it. And of course, if they're successful, we will all be living in smart cities, these megatropolis cities where everything is tracked, traced. We are surveilled 24-7 by artificial intelligence. And of course, we'll be transhuman by that point if they get their way which I don't think they will, but we need to understand who the United Nations and UNESCO really are, and that's what we get into in tonight's show. Now, before we get to part one, I just wanted to remind people that we still have some spaces available for group coaching coming up in February, although they are extremely limited now. This is going to be teaching people how to not only protect but grow their wealth going into a monetary reset. We're going to be discussing what opportunities will be there because make no mistake, there will be opportunities as well. We're also going to be looking at risk management, precious metal strategies, how to value companies. There will also be some specialist workshops, including one with David Rogers Webb on managing our wealth going into the great taking. So there'll be a lot there. It's a fantastic course and I'm looking forward to getting into it for the second time. So if you're interested, please email me at parallelmightpodcast at protonmail.com. I'm also available for one-to-one wealth preservation consultations. I've had quite a few of them recently helping people to protect their wealth and to go on to thrive no matter what is thrown at them by these lunatics that are running this insane asylum. So we're going to leave it there for our introduction. Members, please head over to parallelmike.com to listen to the full episode. If you are not a member yet, please consider subscribing. It really helps support me and the research. And also, of course, you get to listen to part two, which are always the best parts, although part one is extremely good as well. Make no mistake, don't go running. This one's a great episode, but part two is always worth listening to. So in closing, thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all well, healthy, and reasonably happy. And like always, I'll see you all in the next one. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. We are joined by returning guest at Money. And tonight, we're going to be discussing both the United Nations, but also especially focusing in on UNESCO. Now, this was a topic that we've both wanted to discuss for a long time. So we did our separate pieces of research and we're coming together tonight to share that with you all. So just a quick hello at Moni. Do you like that name that I gave you? (laughs) Hello, everyone. Yes, I love it, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thought I've got parallel Mike. I've got my own Monica. And that, that sounds very strange. I've got my own Monica and I'm here with Monica. And I thought I'd better give Monica a new Monica, which is at Monica, at Money. So uh, there's a lot of Monicas there, isn't there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I'm not 
I'm not doing us any favours, really, am I, for the start of this podcast? But like I said, we are going to be discussing tonight the United Nations and UNESCO. And we're going to focus specifically on UNESCO. Uh, but you actually brought this topic to me a while back. You said you really wanted to look at UNESCO, and I did too, because it's kind of like the the creepy little brother of United Nations, which is a creepy big brother, as we're going to find out in part one. But what made you so interested in this topic of UNESCO? It's kind of something that comes from your career, isn't it? Absolutely, Michael. Well, I've been an art conservator for many years, and UNESCO has been um, an organization that I've always heard of, and, uh, and we studied it actually at the university as well. From UNESCO, you get lots of charters initialized, which then dictate, for example, how to proceed with conservation work on art pieces, monuments, heritage overall, you name it. And then uh, UNESCO as well is uh, an instrumental part in designating different buildings or part of a city even or uh, natural sites designated as conservation areas and hence protected in various degrees, so I've been always interested in it. Yeah, UNESCO can in some ways be thought of like a graded building. Like, you know, we have graded buildings in the UK and in other countries where once you've had this applied to them, you have a really severe set of limitations as to what you can and cannot do. Well, UNESCO actually do that with huge parcels of land, historic sites, monuments across the world. And once they've got that listing on it, a UNESCO listing, it really does treat it with kids' gloves, you essentially have your rights as a nation over that site taken from you and handed off to the United Nations under their little brother, UNESCO. UNESCO has its own team of um, advisors and, and they have their own way of uh, proceeding with monuments or certain aspects of uh, culture, etc. And they, they are showing themselves as a as sort of a advisory body but essentially whenever you do conservation within on, on those sites it's, it's UNESCO or UNESCO representatives that are the main uh, deal breakers the, the main decision makers for, for those sites there is a good side of the deal too because uh, you you have all your funding covered for your conservation projects but on the other hand you have to do it within their recommendations and uh, also whichever uh, sites are under UNESCO patronage, let's call it, those sites are reporting back to UNESCO again. So essentially those places become UNESCO-controlled places as such. Fiefdoms. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and one of the things that UNESCO does is ensures that there is no trespassing, uh, there is no um, unwanted... Uh, visits uh, to the places yeah <laughs> the plebs can't go there well the thing to think about with unesco is it's a key part of this push towards a one world system and therefore you can unite all of these sites under unesco and that becomes now all already a part of a one world system they might be situated in what we see as sovereign countries but they're not they're owned by unesco and unesco gets to dictate what's done to them but let's just give listeners a brief outline of what UNESCO does. Then we're going to talk a bit about the United Nations because to truly understand UNESCO, of course, you have to understand the United Nations also. But I'm just going to read you a little bit from UNESCO's Wikipedia page. The United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, is a specialized agency of the United Nations with the aim of promoting world peace and security through international cooperation in education, arts, sciences and culture. It has 194 member states and 12 associate members as well as partnerships in the non-governmental, intergovernmental and private sector. Headquartered in Paris, France, UNESCO has 53 regional field offices and 199 national commissions. UNESCO was founded in 1945 as the successor to the League of Nations International Committee on Intellectual Cooperation. Its constitution establishes the agency's goals governing structure and operating framework. UNESCO's founding mission was shaped by the events of World War II to advance peace, sustainable development, there's that word again, sustainable development, that's going to come back again and again, and human rights by facilitating collaboration and dialogue among nations. It pursues this objective through five major program areas, education, natural sciences, social human sciences, culture and communication and information. So there you go. That's what Wikipedia has to say about UNESCO. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, what brings to my mind is interesting that uh, it's a second 
international organization that's aiming at uh, creating peace, uh, making sure that another war doesn't happen again, because the first one failed uh, incredibly. And in fact, uh, today I was reading as well about the uh, Hague Convention of 1899 and then subsequent conventions in uh, 1907. And the last one was meant to be in 1914 which was also aimed at making sure that a new international body, which was then uh, some sort of arbitrary, I think was called a permanent arbitrary court, uh, will prevent any wars from happening. And at the same time, they established a list of um, proceeding with war that is more humanitarian, let's say. Than <laughs> and uh, it's it's quite telling that the more international conventions and bodies and organizations they are creating, the more wars we have. Yeah, so if the United Nations and UNESCO are being charged with delivering a mandate of world peace, they haven't done a very good job of it, have they, considering that since 1942, when the United Nations was first formed, we've basically had never-ending war. <laughs> we've had non-stop war since then. And if you look at the biggest funder of the United Nations... That was the U.S. and the U.S. has been responsible for more lives lost than I think any other nation in human history. It's essentially been non-stop and I would say it's in the hundreds of millions perhaps. So if that is the mandate of the U.N. to bring about global peace, they haven't really done a very good job of it, have they? In fact, I would say they've just helped facilitate more war. What do you think about that one, Mon? Absolutely. The, um, the history is the proof of uh, how successful they were in doing what they were doing. If, if I was an employee doing a, such a great job as they were, I would definitely be fired very soon. I was saying earlier to you, it's like if I was working for a company, if they put me in charge of the uh, the filing cabinets and they came back a year later and I'd bent down all the filing cabinets, I don't think they'd then say, right, we now want to promote you so you're also looking after our, our computer databases, our software. In fact, why don't you just take control of our, all of our plants as well? Here's a nuclear power plant to look after, but that's what's happening to the UN. They fail, fail and fail in their supposed mandate. And yet they are ever expanding. And now we've got to Agenda 2030 and Agenda 2050. We've already come past the 21. And that's essentially giving them a mandate to take control over all of the Earth's resources. And through their subsidiaries of this corporation, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the World Bank, the IMF, and the many, many others that we're going to discuss tonight, they're taking control over the entire planet. And it's no over-exaggeration to say that they truly are the impetus behind this one world governance system that they're trying to implement. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about the United Nations because I think it's important for listeners to understand that. So UNESCO is one of the many bodies that are attached to the United Nations and that came to be in 1942. And as we know, the UN is essentially designed to bring about a one world government, one world religion and of course a one world monetary system. And we're actually living through the evolution of all three of those things. They're all being implemented as we speak right now. If you look around the world, we're on the precipice of all of them coming to the fore. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about them in a moment. But there are many, many other bodies and institutions attached to this. So I've mentioned the World, the world Bank and the IMF. But there's also the Food and Agriculture Organization, the International Maritime Organization, the International Court of Justice, which people just today refer to as the World Court. <laughs> You're going to World Court. So this One World system has already got all of the infrastructure put in place. And essentially, it was designed from the very beginning. In fact, I'd say it was its modus operandi was to destroy and undermine national sovereignty. So it's sort of like a Trojan horse that's helping to bring about this One World beast system. And there isn't really any arguing about that. You know, if you say that today, they'll say, oh, conspiracy theorist, you're a conspiracy theorist. But actually, if you look at their own literature and go back to what was there at the very beginning, what you'll find is that they were openly saying those things in their own literature. But they use that conspiracy theorist label because they can't afford to have people at this stage in the game questioning what they're doing. And of course, now it's completely enveloped in all of these ideologies, particularly the climate change agenda. They've used that as a really big Trojan horse to get the last big push where they're going to take back the land. They're going to take control of it if they get their way. So if we look at the monstrosity it's become today and the trajectory that we're on, they're not just a threat to national sovereignty. They're really today, I would say, a threat to uh, human dignity. And the real aim is to destroy any concept of human beings having inalienable rights and replace them with what they call human rights. But the human rights are created by humans. And in their own literature, they state 
that human rights should sometimes have to take a back seat in order to do things for the common good. So for example, if we have a mysterious pandemic, then actually we should revoke some of them for the greater good. So that's the difference between human rights and inalienable rights. Inalienable rights come from our creator. They're given to us by God. We are endowed with them. From birth, we have them. No man can take them away. Nobody can negate them for any crisis, real or supposed. They are yours and nobody can take them off you. And that's what the American Constitution was all about. It said that everyone has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, their human rights are actually decided upon by a group of people, a group of globalists sat in an office. They say, what rights shall we endow them with? What shall we allow them to have? What shall we give and what shall we take away? So the UN is not just about taking away national sovereignty, it's also about taking away human sovereignty. And that's really important to understand. Now, right now, the big buzzword is sustainable development, and they've got their 17 sustainable development goals. And they're essentially implementing that global regime that's going to seek to monitor, oversee, and very strictly regulate all of our planet's oceans, lakes, streams, rivers, seabeds, wetlands, coastlands, aquifers, forests, jungles, agricultural land, deserts, tundra, mountains, everything. They want complete control and to limit access to all of that so that we have zero independence. Then, of course, the final step is to put us all into some kind of smart city where we can be monitored, surveilled, and controlled at all times. And that'll be where the central bank digital currencies and digital IDs come in, which again, they've actually said by 2030, the goal is to ensure every citizen in the world has some kind of identification. Now, of course, we know that's going to be digital ID. And if you look at the sustainable development goals, I mean, on the outset, they look fine. No poverty, zero hunger, gender equality, quality education. However, the moment you scratch the surface of these things, they are completely totalitarian. And everything that is within each one of these goals is designed to take away your freedoms, your liberties, and your rights to live here. As a free agent, as somebody that has inalienable rights, it's designed to destroy them. So that's essentially a basic overview of the United Nations. It is designed to upset sovereignty, of human beings and of nations and all of its charters and the international laws that it creates can take away a country's ability to enact independently. So that's what it's doing. That's why we've got this whole one world push right now. It's essentially because of them. The WEF is really like a junior partner to the United Nations. A lot of these, like the Council of Foreign Relations, the Club of Rome, they are the ones that discuss it. They discuss the policy. They talk with corporations and get people on board but it's the United Nations that implements it and creates the laws and structures that push it forward at the political level. Yeah, and Mike, what puzzles me really is um, why there are certain um, member states, uh, for example, USA, Israel and Liechtenstein that are members of the UN, but are not, they are not members of the UNESCO. Would you, would you have an idea why? Uh, maybe I should add as well that um, the US has a history uh, of... Um, uh, quitting <laughs> their membership to UNESCO and then coming back to it on and off. So, so they've been, um, I think they are now back to, to actually being a member. They've rejoined uh, UNESCO. However, uh, e Israel claims that uh, UNESCO is anti-Israeli or anti-Semitic. And when it comes to Liechtenstein, they've never actually been a part of it. So I, I thought that's a really interesting point because the entire world is, is part of of UNESCO, apart from, from Liechtenstein. Yeah, Liechtenstein's a very interesting country. It's a tiny little country. It's about the size of a major city, actually, if you look at it. And it's a tax haven as well. So there's a lot of wealthy people who have their tax, uh, use it as a tax haven and have hidden wealth there. You can't become a citizen of it. It has a lot of those same rights and privileges that Switzerland has. So I think they've actually set it up so there's banks there that have got a lot of privacy. So it's like, yeah, it's basically a place for the elites to hide their money. Yeah, and the reason that the United States pulled out is because there was a long-running dispute over the decision of UNESCO to admit Palestine as a member in 2011. And also they made a ruling on the UNESCO heritage site, which is Temple Mount, of course. That's what Israel's trying to lay claim to. And they said essentially that they should keep it the same way as it is, that 
you know, the current ruling of who owns what should remain the same. And of course, Israel took offense to that and they said, no, we should have more rights to it than we currently have. And, you know, they said that the West Bank, for example, was Israel's, but the East Bank was Palestine. So they didn't like that. They didn't like that the rulings uh, on how it should be listed were not in Hebrew. So the US pulled out, Israel pulled out. And when the US pulled out, it took with it 22% of the budget. But essentially what happened is China then stepped up and said, okay, we'll replace America. And for the past six years or so, it was China who was making up for the shortfall on the budget. Now under Biden, the US decided to rejoin and they essentially just had to pay back all of the membership fees that they hadn't paid this far. So it was about $620 million they had to pay to rejoin and they've just done that. So, you know, what did it achieve? Nothing. It just allowed China a bigger seat at the table. But that's where all the controversy comes from. You know, it's all related to Israel. The whole world is related to Israel right now. And they're in the driving seat. They want that Temple Mount and, you know, UNESCO, for all of their faults, have said, no, actually, we're going to keep it the same way as it is. So that's maybe the only positive we're going to get tonight for UNESCO. <laughs> Most likely. But you actually found something interesting in your research that you sent to me. It was a newspaper cartoon from when UNESCO was first formed. And it was in a French, I think it was in a French newspaper, and it was mocking UNESCO because it was essentially choosing all Jews for the key positions, wasn't it? That's almost correct, Michael. Uh, so that caricature actually is uh, much earlier. It's from 1920s and it shows the first committee of the newly created uh, body that was prior to UNESCO. It was a League of Nations International Committee on Intellectual Cooperation and they invited many prominent back then uh, scientists to a former committee from a multicultural international cooperation in, in science and, and culture as such. But there were so many um, people who were of the uh, Jewish origin that I think that's why they created that uh, caricature. And who was it? There was Marie Curie, there was Einstein, there was a whole host of them, wasn't there? As part of this first one, I remember now. Yes, yes. I, I think we can see Einstein in here. Yeah, and that was the predecessor to UNESCO. You're right, the League of Nations International Committee on Intellectual Cooperation. Very snazzy, very catchy title there. They were essentially there to do what UNESCO now does, which is to cooperate all the education, all of the cultural dissemination, control all of the different uh, historic narratives and artifacts. And that's what UNESCO does today. So they were the first incarnation of course, the League of Nations fall apart, so this fall apart too. And then it came back with a vengeance after World War II, uh, or towards the end of it. That's when they created the IMF. That's when they created the United Nations. And that whole thing, you know, actually, you might not know this, but when they were creating the United Nations, it was done on a full moon in April in 1942. So they took a full moon, and from the very beginning, it was based on occultism. And I can prove that because Alice Bailey and her husband, Foster Bailey, were brought in and tasked to actually make the education program for the United Nations. And they actually create, helped create the first international education program. But he was a 32 degree Freemason. She was a theosophist. And they were all about bringing about a new avatar, which they said would be brought about by world servers who worked for the United Nations. This is how weird and creepy it all is. And they believed that there would be this new avatar coming after potentially a third world war. And she said the only way we could stop the warring would be to have the United Nations take over these world servers. And then this avatar would appear. Now me and PJ Bice have done an episode all about Alice Bailey and her book, The Reappearance of the Christ. So check that one out because that one is essentially built into the United Nations and UNESCO structures. It was always about a one world religion as well. And it was an occult religion. And, you know, at the United Nations headquarters in New York, there is a prayer room there that's made for people to go and meditate. But there's this prism in there. There's like a one beam of light that comes down on the top of it, which is like the all seeing eye. It's very, very occult. And also the Lucy's Trust headquarters and the Lucy's Trust was created by Alice Bailey and her husband. That's just around the corner, too. And that's tied in with the United Nations as well. The Lucifer's Trust, or the Lucifer's Trust, essentially glorifies Luciferianism. And what they believe is that Lucifer is the true bringer of liberation to mankind, and God is the enemy. He's the one that we should be rebelling against. So the Lucifer's Trust is, again, intrinsically linked with the United Nations. So listeners might not understand this one, but it's all there online. You can go look it up. Look up the Lucifer's Trust. Look up Alice Bailey and her connections to the United Nations, and you'll find all of this information. What do you think about that, Money? Oh, I never heard about the Lucius Trust, but um, 
it, it certainly makes makes sense, especially when you think about UNESCO as the arm to make sure that we interpret the past in a certain way they want us to interpret it. And then we think about the presence and the future in terms they want us to, because one of the main goals was to unify education and to make sure that everyone has a, a free access to education, but not an education, a specific, an education that is designed in a specific way within a unified concepts and terms. And, and you know, we, we quite often compare our topics of education between Poland and the UK. I know it's still within Europe, but but we read the same books, we we learn the same same, same concepts and philosophies, etc. And, and therefore, they create a modern man with a way of thinking the way they wanted us to think. So uh, it, it makes sense, like UNESCO becomes suddenly that part of shaping our minds and perhaps not to achieve peace as they wanted, <laughs> but to achieve a person who is of a certain characteristics. Okay, let's move on. I've got another quote here, and this is about the creation of the United Nations headquarters. Although it is physically situated in New York City, the land occupied by the United Nations headquarters and the spaces of buildings that it rents are under the sole administration of the United Nations and not the United States. They're technically extraterritorial through a treaty agreement with the US government. However, in exchange for local police, fire protection and other services, the UN agrees to acknowledge most local, state and federal laws. Most local, state and federal laws. In 1946, Zeckendorf purchased the land with the intention to create a futuristic self-contained city called X-City on the site. This complex was to contain an office building and a hotel, each 57 stories tall, and an entertainment complex between them. X-City would also have had a smaller apartment and office towers. However, the $8.5 million, $83 million in 2020 money for X-City never materialised and Nelson Rockefeller purchased the waterfront land in Turtle Bay. The purchase was funded by Nelson's father, John D. Rockefeller Jr. The Rockefeller family owned the Tudor City apartments across First Avenue from the Zeckendorf site, and the city in turn spent $5 million, $49 million in 2020 on clearing the land. Rockefeller donated the site to the United Nations in December 1946, and the UN accepted this donation. So what do you think about that one? It came from the Rockefeller family. Isn't it interesting just how many times when you go back throughout history, like for example, the London School of Economics, the Fabians, that all of the money seems to come from the Rockefellers and it was the same with the UN headquarters. Have you heard that one before? No, I haven't. And surprise, surprise, isn't it? I'm surprised as well that an international body that is founded, co-founded by all the countries in the world need to accept donations as well from private bodies. Yeah, well, they've also got a building in Great Britain, in London, that was donated by, guess who? The Rothschild family. They donated a house in Piccadilly. It was the family's residence, and they created a club there for members of the United Nations where British and American servicemen and women would be able to spend hours of leisure. And that was donated to them to give them a place to stay. And it was such an extravagant residence that the first ball attended by Edward VII after his accession was given there. So there you go. Another very wealthy elite banking family this time that was donating to the United Nations. So the elites were all about this. And these are private businessmen. These are not the kind of people that you would want running the world. And yet they were the ones funding the one world system entity called the United Nations. Yeah, I would say a very dangerous situation, isn't it? They they are businessmen, as you say. So if you pay for something, you expect something in exchange. Well, listen to this one. Here's another extract of what they were actually planning to do with the site. The United Nations had dreamed of constructing an independent city for its new world capital. Multiple obstacles soon forced the organisation to downsize their plans, and they ultimately decided to build on Rockefeller's East River plot, since the land was free and the landowners were well known. Now, that's lifted directly from the Wikipedia page, so this is the official information. And what they were planning to do was to create an independent city within the United States that they would have complete extraterritorial rights. It would be a sovereign state like the Vatican, like the city of London, and they were going to create the global capital there. Now, they decided against that one, and I don't think it was through lack of financing. I think it was probably because they realized it was too soon to announce the plans, but that was the original plan. It wasn't just to have a headquarters. It was to have an independent city that they called the global capital. 
Wow, that's a good finding, Michael. It wasn't hard. It was on Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, they they certainly see the organization as as a some sort of country or, or a government because when you see the vocabulary as well, you see constitution. Independent countries that are part that are members of the organization are never called countries. They are called member states or state parties as well. So all the vocabulary as well shows organization of hierarchy and and the United Nations and UNESCO is as uh, above and the other countries in the world and and they suddenly become a part of it. Uh, so so the vocabulary signifies a creation of a new country as such to me. And one thing that I never picked up on but I wanted to ask you is what did you think about the name of that city that they was going to build there called X City? Because there's that logo again, the X logo. We've seen Twitter recently turned over to X by Elon Musk. And I know for a fact the grandfather of the original director general, the very first one of UNESCO, who was, of course, Julian Huxley, who we're going to get into in part two. But his grandfather, who was Thomas Huxley, he had a secret society called X as well. So this X logo with the elites keeps coming back again and again. And we've just seen it revived again through Elon Musk. So what do you think about that? Have you noticed that this X logo is coming around? Yeah, I've noticed there is a, another company as well that I know, um, which now calls itself StoneX and it used to be called something else. So CoinInvest, I think. Co yeah, yeah. Oh, CoinInvest. Coin uh, so, so definitely that X uh, comes back. It's very bad decision in terms of like it looks bad so it's certainly not not easy to market choice so no it's a terrible choice from a marketing standpoint isn't it that you choose x somebody would have to choose that because they really wanted that symbol oh absolutely it's like nothing it's something crossed off it's yeah like it's crossed cancel. off it's negative or we used to have triple x which was something that you'd put for pornography or adult films, or we had double X, which means a double cross, which is Freemasonic. So it's only ever been used in a negative context. And now all of a sudden, people seem to want to use it to promote their business by changing the name to it, which doesn't make sense at all to me. No, it's not original and it looks bad. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, so moving on, let's talk a little bit more about the United Nations, because I don't think people, most people are not quite aware of just how much power they've got. So they are essentially a sovereign organization. And what I mean by that is in the legal sense, very few entities in the world are actually sovereign. And what sovereign means is that you have complete freedom on this planet, that you cannot be taken to a court of law. For example, King Charles in Great Britain, he's sovereign. He cannot be called to a court of law. He doesn't have to pay taxes. He can move freely without a passport. That is what sovereign truly means. Now, we're all born sovereign. Every one of us is sovereign under natural law. However, we have our rights accept from the very beginning when we agree unwittingly, we don't actually agree, but they take implicit agreement that we are put into the system through our birth certificate and therefore we are no longer sovereign. We now have a corporate entity. That's our all caps last name. And now we are a part of the system and we can be taxed, traded, whatever they want. We have to abide by their laws. But True sovereigns don't have any of that. Now, the United Nations is truly sovereign, as is UNESCO. They all have a special charter, and it's called the Charter of the United Nations Organization. And under Article 104 and 105, essentially what it tells you is what it's like to be truly sovereign. It tells you all of the rights and privileges that you have when you are sovereign. So I'm going to take you through this one step by step, and it really helps to highlight just how powerful they are. Okay, Section 1. The United Nations shall possess juridical personality. It shall have the capacity to contract, to acquire and dispose of immovable and movable property and to institute legal proceedings. Now, what that means is that as an entity, it can act as though it is a nation. So it can actually institute legal proceedings by itself. It can acquire and dispose of immovable and movable property. But now listen to this one, section two. The United Nations, its property and assets, wherever located and by whomsoever held, shall enjoy immunity from every form of legal process, except insofar as in any particular case it has expressly waived its immunity. So what it's saying is that wherever it has property or assets, it is immune from any kind of legal process. Any legal process, unless it chooses to waive its own immunity. No law in any land can touch the United Nations or UNESCO or any of the other many, many different agencies that are attached to it. Section 3. The premises of the United Nations shall be inviolable. 
the property and the assets of the United Nations, wherever located and by whomsoever held, shall be immune from search, requisition, confiscation, expropriation and any other form of interference, whether by executive administration or by legislative action. Section 4. The archives of the United Nations and in general all documents belonging to it or held by it shall be inviolable wherever located. Section 5. Without being restricted by financial controls, regulations or moratoria of any kind, the United Nations may hold funds, gold or currency of any kind and operate accounts in any currency. The United Nations shall be free to transfer its funds, gold or currency from one country to another or within any country to convert any currency held by it into any other currency. So complete legal freedom when it comes to money as well. Section 7, the United Nations, its assets, income and other property shall be exempt from all direct taxes. It is understood, however, that the United Nations will not claim exemptions from taxes, which are, in fact, no more than charges for public utility services. So there you go. It's got complete freedom to not pay any taxes anywhere in the world. Does this sound like a normal institution or does it sound like they've got some kind of special sovereignty that you or I are told we don't possess? It doesn't seem right to me that living human beings in a world that's meant to be where everyone is equal, we don't get those rights, but they do. And nobody got to vote on it. Nobody gets to choose who's in power over there. Nobody gets to decide if they want to be a part of the United Nations. It's all just done behind the scenes. And yet they've got this right to move property around the world tax-free, move gold around the world without anyone being able to question it. It's, it's, it's very bizarre. The United Nations is exempt from custom duties and prohibitions and restrictions on imports and exports in respect to articles imported or exported by the United Nations for its official use. It is understood, however, that articles imported under such exemptions will not be sold in the country into which they are imported, except under conditions agreed with the government of that country. The United Nations is also exempt from customs, duties and prohibitions and restrictions on imports and exports in respect of its publication, section number eight. This one basically says that they will not, out of choice as a general rule, claim exemption from excise duties and taxes on the sale of movable and immovable property, although they can. Section number nine says that they will enjoy the territory of each member for its official communications treatment with no less favorable rules than accorded to the government of that member or to any other government, including its diplomatic mission, in the matter of priorities, rates and taxes on mails, cables, telegrams, radiograms, telephotos, telephone and other communications. So essentially, whichever country it is in, it has the same rights at least as the government there. Section number 10. The United Nations shall have the right to use codes and to dispatch and receive its correspondences by courier or in bags, which shall have the same immunities and privileges as diplomatic couriers and bags. So it has the ability to have anonymous communications sent to it and to be sent out from it in any country. Section number 11, representatives of members to the principal and subsidiary organs of the United Nations and to conferences convened by the United Nations shall, while exercising their functions and during their journey to and from the place of meeting, enjoy the following privileges and immunities. Immunity from personal arrest or detention and from seizure of their personal baggage and in respect of words spoken or written and all acts done by them in their capacity as representatives, immunity from legal processes of every kind. So if you work for the United Nations and you're a representative, they essentially grant you complete immunity from any kind of arrest or any legal process. So you can essentially commit any crime on planet Earth and they cannot try you for it. Inviability for all papers and documents. You can transport what you like. You can transport any papers, documents, it doesn't matter. The right to use codes and to receive papers or correspondence by courier. Exemption in respect to themselves and their spouses from immigration restrictions, alien registrations or national service obligations in the state they are visiting or through, which they are passing in the exercise of their functions. So you can travel uh, without going down the usual channels. In fact, they give you a special passport give you a special passport, a United Nations one, that you can use to travel around the world in any country that's recognised as a member state. And I've been through it further. Also, if you are one of their members or diplomatic envoys, you can move from any country and have all of your stuff transferred across and none of it gets searched or looked at for taxes or duties. So you can just transport around the world gold, diamonds, whatever you want. So essentially, it's like a giant criminal organisation. They've got no oversight at all and no law in any land can touch them.
<laughs> what do you think about that one? That's the United Nations. Their, and their goal, supposedly, is world peace. It sounds to me like their goal is money laundering, actually, when you look at the rights and privileges they've got. What do you think about that? This omnipotent United Nations. Why do they get those rights and you and I don't? I know. And, and who gave them those rights? They, they've, they've given themselves those rights. And they are also deciding upon what we do, isn't it? They, they give us all the rights and... and um, they give us interpretation to history, to, to every single moment of our lives. There's always them deciding upon us. So that's very unequal, isn't it? It's completely unequal. Yes. And like I said before, that is the rights that you are endowed with as a human being under natural law. But they accept our natural law and they give us man's law, maritime law, where you attract like a corporation. But I would say that what they've got isn't even natural law. I'd say it goes beyond that because natural law would still say that, you know, if you kill somebody, if it was out of self-defense, fine. But if it was out of anger and rage, not fine. You know, that's not right. It's not natural law. And yet they've got no prosecution for anything. Now, if you look at some of the controversies around the United Nations, they had some of their senior officials and a lot of their workers that were out there in Africa participating in child prostitution, sex slavery. They were doing all kinds of things. And of course, none of them could be prosecuted. And if you look back throughout the history of the UN, there are some very, very dark skeletons in those closets. You know, to say that they're this peacekeeping, charitable organization, it's a load of BS. They're not. They're enacting crimes across the world and there's no prosecution coming for them because of this uh, constitution that they've been allowed to have. And they are cooperating, if not um, creating organizations that also have reports of, um, um, I don't know, stolen goods or uh, trafficked items, whatever, that they, they can intercept any um, intelligence or information to protect themselves should should there be someone knowing something, isn't it? For example, there is that uh, institution called uh, ICOM, the International Council of Museums, and they do cooperate with Interpol for, uh, to um, ensure that any stolen historic artefact will be found and returned to whatever the museum or owner is. So so here you go, like they, they do, they can move things around and uh, should they be uncovered, they also have the institutions to help them cover things back. Exactly. They've got basically a giant intelligence network across the world. They can enact coded messaging and not have them looked at. And I, I've got it here actually in front of me. The United Nations has also drawn criticism for perceived failures. In many cases, member states have shown reluctance to achieve or enforce Security Council resolutions. Disagreements in the Security Council about military action and intervention are seen as having failed to prevent the Bangladesh genocide in 1971, the Cambodian genocide in the 1970s, and the Rwandan genocide in 1994. Similarly, UN action is blamed for failing to either prevent the Srebrenica massacre or complete the peacekeeping operations during the Somali civil war. UN peacekeepers have also been accused of child rape, soliciting prostitutes and sexual abuse during various peacekeeping missions in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Haiti, Liberia, Sudan, Burundi, Cote d'Ivory. Scientists cited UN peacekeepers from Nepal as the source of the 2010s Haiti cholera outbreak, which killed more than 8,000 people. So there you have it. They are marauding across the world. They have no law that can touch them. You know, these organizations are a mafia and anyone that says otherwise uh, hasn't looked into it. But I would also say, just remember, these are the people that are trying to take us to a one world system. They're also behind the education programs that are all across the world right now, teaching children to cut off their genitals and to desex themselves, which will make a lot more sense in part two when you realize who was behind the original push for UNESCO, which was transhumanist Julian Huxley. In fact, he invented the term transhumanism, and transhumanism has been a key part of their ideology from the beginning. So the world we've got today and where we are right now in the world, going towards this depopulation, this one world system where humans are going to have their rights accept, they're going to be teft off the land, and we've got children wanting to transition because they've got these sick ideologies that are being pushed on them. Well, that's all coming from the UN and UNESCO. And it comes from the very origins of it. It's not something that they've just picked up on. From the very beginning, it was all about transhumanism and depopulation. And eugenics, which of course transhumanism, is a modern form of eugenics. And wait until you hear some of the quotes I've got from the first director general of UNESCO, Julian Huxley, what he had to say. And remember, he was the guy they specifically chose to run 
the United Nations Education, Social and Cultural Organization, UNESCO. So we'll get to that in part two. So I'm going to hand it over to you because I think we're going to draw part one to a close soon and move on to UNESCO. But what's your closing thoughts on this? I think that when you read the... Um a constitution of, of UNESCO, quite telling what, what they tell themselves, what they're going to do. And, uh, and I thought it's worth mentioning why they decided, at least officially, to, to establish uh, UNESCO, as they say. Because you see, they, they, tried, they believe in equal opportunities for education for all. And also, they believe in the unrestricted pursuit of objective truth. And I thought that that was very interesting. Is what what is an unrestricted pursuit of objective truth, and and who's got the right to decide what is true, and what what is the objective truth of all the things, isn't it? Especially that we are talking on global scale. Well, we're seeing that right now, aren't we? We're seeing what objective truth looks like. Objective truth is essentially a flexible term, and it's whatever they say on any given day. So we're being told right now that females with XX chromosomes can actually be males with XY chromosomes. And all they have to do is to chop off the breasts, have a hysterectomy, have layers of flesh and tissue cut out of their leg or their forearm, leaving them with grotesque scars and muscles uh, missing. And then they can have that shaped into some kind of phallic type shape, which really doesn't look like a phallus at all. It looks like a dead piece of meat. And if they attach that then to their genitals, they're a man. Now, they don't say that just hypothetically. They say that literally, it's a man. That's objective truth today. Now, it wasn't objective truth 20 years ago, but they've just decided it is. Now, as we're going to part two, we're going to talk a little bit more about how transhumanism is actually inextricably linked to what's happening now, which is this transgender agenda. In fact, they call it trans for a reason. You notice they don't call it transgenderism, that if they can help it, they call it trans. So it can easily be translated to transhumanism. Because a key part of transhumanism is, of course, de-sexing people. Because what's a cyborg? A cyborg doesn't have a sex. A robot doesn't have a sex. Lucifer, their Luciferianism, remember we spoke about the Lucius Trust that has their headquarters overlooking the United Nations. Lucifer was not male and he wasn't female. It was intersex. And remember, this whole idea of non-binary, that comes straight from transhumanism. You know, transhumanism is off the gender binary. It's, it's a... It's a synthesis of genders. It can be anything at any point. So that's where they're taking us psychologically and the conditioning us. So now you can see how UNESCO is really the indoctrination arm of the United Nations. It's also the arbiter of historical fact. They get to decide what's true and what isn't. And they can stop us now from going to these sites. So we cannot actually see what was truly going on there. And as soon as UNESCO get hold of a site, and they put their limitations as to what you can do, you then cannot go to those sites with modern scientific instruments to find out if the history they've told us is true or false. So, for example, you cannot go to Auschwitz now and do any kind of sonograms onto the ground to see what was really going on. Because remember, they say there's lots of bodies that were under there. There should be lots of skeletons. They don't let you dig it up. You aren't allowed to look at it. You cannot question historical narratives. Now, I'm not saying we should question it or we shouldn't. I'm just saying, isn't it weird that all of these sites that they hold, we cannot go and do any of the things that they would want to do to tell us that the history is true. They're saying, actually, no, we're just going to leave it. We're just going to leave it and give you the narratives. Same in Egypt. Now, we'll get into this in part two, but I just wanted to go back to that quote that you said a second ago in the charter. I'm going to read it one more time because I found the last bit very interesting. For these reasons, the state parties to this constitution, believing in full and equal opportunities for education, indoctrination, for all in the unrestricted pursuit of objective truth and in the free exchange of ideas and knowledge are agreed and determined to develop and to increase the means of communication between their peoples and to employ these means for the purposes of mutual understanding and a truer and more perfect knowledge of each other's lives. Now, what does that mean? A truer. Again, arbiters of truth. So I'm going to leave it there for part one. Money, thank you for joining us in this one. I'm looking forward to part two because I've got a load of information on UNESCO. We're going to start by looking into Julian Huxley and his family. His grandfather was known as Darwin's Bulldog. That was Thomas Huxley. He's an interesting character. He was a key member of all of the Royal Societies back then. He actually was against Darwinism and then did a complete 180 degrees about face and became the biggest proponent of it for over 30 years. So let's get into that one because I think when you look into the key names behind these things, 
you start to find out what these things were actually really about from the very get-go. What's your final thoughts, Money? I can't wait for the part two, so I, my knowledge about it will be more perfect. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get a truer representation of the of the truth. Okay, so we're going to leave it there for part one. In part two, we get into the origins of UNESCO. We look at the Huxleys and how they help take us to this dead materialist world where there is no God, but there is transhumanism. There's human gods, little gods with a little G that are coming fast and furious. How did they manage to help us achieve that with the Brave New World book by Aldous? Then we had Julian at UNESCO and we had their grandfather who was the key proponent of Darwinism. He spread that across the world. So we get into the Huxleys. We also talk about some of the other interesting and important events relating to UNESCO, like the WWF, the World Wildlife Federation, which was first presided over by a Nazi. Yes, Prince Bernhard from Holland, he was a Nazi, and he was also somebody who was bribed by Lockheed Martin whilst he was head of the WWF and he had to resign for it. And he got replaced by another Nazi. Would you believe it? So a very interesting part two coming up. Members, please head over to parallelmind.com to listen to the full episode if you're not a member yet. What are you waiting for? You're missing out on some fantastic episodes, but maybe... Just maybe you can't afford to become a member or you don't want to become a member. Well, you can still support the podcast by leaving a positive review and sharing this podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it. Somebody who you think might still have some critical thought left in their mind. Send it to those people. In fact, send it to those that don't either. Let's face it, they probably need it more than anyone. So in closing, I hope you're all well, healthy and happy. And like always, I look forward to seeing you in the next one for another awesome episode. Take care. God bless. and I'll see you next time. What you are basic. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Not really peace in our time, peace in all time.